Welcome to this production from College Place United Methodist Church. To find out more about our church, please visit our website at www.collegeplaceumc.org. And now, here's our sermon from Rev. Tab Miller. The world is a beautiful place. But fear can sometimes blind us of that fact. We turn on the news and we see tragedy, we see violence, we see disaster. And all of these things lead our hearts to fear, stealing away our joy so that we don't enjoy the beauty of this world. We have been talking about over the last several weeks the peace that comes with the Easter message. The personal peace that comes into our lives knowing that Jesus is risen. But what happens to that peace when we take it out into a fallen world? What happens to that peace when the people around us don't have it? What happens when that peace does not permeate society? Is it any good out in the public sphere? Does it have any bearing out there in the world? And I believe that's what our passage from the book of Acts Chapter 4, verses 5 through 12, has to tell us about today. I believe that's part of the message in Acts 4, 5 through 12. So let me read that now to you. The next day, their rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. When they had made the prisoners stand in their midst, they inquired, By what power... Or what name do you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are questioned today because of a good deed done to someone who was sick and are asked how this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that this man is standing before you in good health by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified whom God raised from the dead. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. It has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among mortals by which we must be saved. I want to stress that line. This is Peter talking to his captors, and he says, this is the name by which we must be saved. To fully understand the text that I just read, we need a little bit of background. We are hopping into this story midstream. It opens on Peter and John already serving as prisoners. But just the day before, just the day before this hearing, Peter and John are free men. They are living in their new normal. They are living lives in ministry to Jesus Christ And they're doing so in Jerusalem. This is the very city that Jesus was tried, convicted, and killed. Or at least he was killed right outside of the gates of Jerusalem. They did not allow crucifixion within the city. They're living their ministry in the midst of the very place where their Lord was murdered. 
And as they walked towards the temple on this day, perhaps to gather with the ever-growing crowd of disciples that were now worshiping in the temple in the name of Jesus Christ because Christianity was exploding, they passed by a familiar face to all of the people in Jerusalem. As they walked past the gate called Beautiful, there was a beggar, a man who had been there quite often, always asking for money. And he's not all that convinced, this beggar, if you read the story, that Peter and John want to help him. Because by the time Peter and John get to him, they're already being ignored by him. They have to capture his attention once again. But Peter and John, they do want to help. There's something about this man that stirs them up. The scripture tells us that they were looking intently at the man when they got to him. From what I can tell, this must mean that they're living their lives like Jesus. We see Jesus walking through the crowds often in his own ministry, and every now and then he feels stirred up, and he stops, and he goes to serve a person who has been there all along. These people were always in need. They were always there, but every now and then, something would happen, and Jesus would stop, just like John and Peter did on this day. I think what is going on is they have an attentiveness now to the Holy Spirit. It was an attentiveness, attentiveness that Jesus embodied, and now the disciples were embracing. After they get the man's attention, they say, hey, look at me. Peter and John proclaim healing over the man in the name of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And when the crowd see this, they are amazed, even shocked, because they all recognize the man. He's that guy that's always outside that gate. He's the guy that you remember his face because when you see him, you want to avoid him. He is going to ask you for something. And so you try to avoid him. But when they see this man running about, they don't have to ask, is that the beggar? Is that, is that him? They know his face. They remember him well. And instead of wondering, is this possible? They're just asking themselves, how in the world did this happen? How can this lame man be doing this? They turn to Peter and John, and Peter and John tell them, it's by the power of the resurrected Christ. It is Easter power that has come upon this man. It is Jesus Christ himself healing the man, and that is when the cuffs are slapped on him. The scripture tells us that in that moment, the officials of the temple were watching and they were annoyed by the man. They can't deny the miracle. The crowds have seen it. They all know it has happened. It happened in the midst of all the people. And so they give it the night to think about how they're going to confront these men. This is where our story picks up. They're having a hearing. Now it's tempting for us to look at this story and think to ourselves, this is simply ridiculous. How can these Israelite leaders, how can they be so obtuse? Why would anybody be angry at seeing a miracle? This was the house of the Lord. They were healing at the temple. The temple officials should be emboldened knowing that their God is alive and working in His temple. Who would act like this? Who amongst us today would be angry as seeing a miracle happen before our eyes. Who amongst us is angry at seeing someone healed? 
I'm glad to see Brother Russell Jacobs here today. God's bringing him through a, a slow recovery. But there's a miracle happening before us even through the hands of doctors. Who amongst us would be angry about that? Why are these Jewish elite such thorns in the sides of the disciples? First they killed Jesus. Now they harassed the disciples who were only bringing healing in the name of Jesus Christ. But I think it's, I think it's easy for us to villainize the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the high priests and the officials and the elders and the scribes and the Bible, they just seem like to us villains in a Disney movie. They have no soul. They have no redeemable qualities. If something bad happens to them, good. Right? They're just evil incarnate. But I'm not so sure that that is what the Bible means for us to hear at a closer reading. This may just be a human way of avoiding the fact that these are real people. It might just be a way of some people saying, including myself, I could never be like them. And yet they're people with real stories as well. And what we see in Peter is a recognition that these men are acting in fear. They're acting in fear on a public level. This is a court hearing, and they want to have men who have done no wrong imprisoned and perhaps murdered. And what does he do? He offers them in boldness a message of Jesus Christ. Jesus saves. For almost a month now, Dr. Daniel and myself have both been preaching that when disciples finally give way to Easter peace, when our hearts finally give way to Easter peace, fear flees us and we're filled with boldness. And today we have an object lesson in the book of Acts. So let's see just how deep this faith and peace runs. Peter and John are standing before a ruling council, a council of elite men, but this isn't just any council. Many councils, many Sanhedrins actually existed in this time throughout Israel, but this is a council that we know all too well. Luke tells us here in the book of Acts that amongst those gathered to question Peter and John are Annas and Caiaphas. You remember those names? The soldiers who first arrested Jesus took Jesus first to the house of Annas. Annas finds him guilty, sends him on to Caiaphas. Caiaphas interviews Jesus, finds him guilty, sends him on to Pilate where they recommend his death. In other words, this is the Sanhedrin, the same high council who months before had a hearing just like this one that eventually led to the condemnation, the beating, and the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is actually the same high council that Dr. Daniel preached on two weeks ago when he was talking about the disciples in hiding. They were hiding in fear behind locked doors for fear of the Sanhedrin, fear of the Jewish council. On the evening of Easter, they are hiding from these very men. But now, now Peter and John who are in hiding 
are standing before them, and the Bible tells us they're standing in boldness, proclaiming without hesitation the name of Jesus Christ, who these men murdered and have the power to do the same to them. Peter is confessing his name. Remember, this is the Peter that denied him three times. This is the Peter who knows what it's like to have fear in the public square because of what people may think of Jesus. He knows the fear in this men. The men are acting out in anger, but it's really deep fear that drives them. But something has changed for this disciple, for these two disciples and all of the disciples. Something drastic has changed. Cowardice has somehow given way to boldness. And this is the truth of the power of Easter. It has finally dawned in their hearts. It has finally become real to them, and they know that no death can threaten We live in a resurrected Christ. We are hidden away in Him. And even if we die, we will be raised from the dead. So again, we have been asking week by week, how can I have this peace? That's been our question since Easter Day. And we've come at it from various angles. In a few short words here today, Peter offers an explanation in his defense that clues us in on the peace that he has. And in fact, he's even before these men, the ones who killed Jesus. He is implicitly inviting them to accept Jesus. He had said just the day before that they killed him in ignorance. But now he is filling them in on the fact that there is no other name under heaven given unto men by which we can be saved. In other words... He is saying, repent and give your life to Jesus. He says it's the name by which we, we must be saved. Not just us against y'all. We must be saved. Fear gives way to peace when we finally let go of all illusions of control to allow Christ to rule all aspects of our lives. That's what Peter's telling them. In order to see this a little bit deeper, let's talk about these men that have arrested Peter and John. Just moments ago, I mentioned that we can sometimes make them out to be nothing more than villains, and yet they represent so much more for us as a church. They are the leaders of Israel. They represent for us God's revelation of the human condition because they are us at our very best. Israel is us at our very best. These are the leaders of Israel. These, don't forget, are God's chosen people. And he revealed to them his law. And they're living their lives according to the law, they think. And what we get to learn from them is that even with all of that, apart from God dwelling in us, through the power of Jesus Christ, we will not be able to obtain Easter peace. Without this peace, the default human nature kicks in. We fall back on the flesh, and the flesh is all about self-preservation. Save yourself. That has been the human condition since we entered into sin. They had the best chance to be like God without having the Holy Spirit, and we see that's no chance at all. 
The law was not enough, but it was a lesson for us. We get to look at their fear and realize that even with all they had, they still needed more, and they really only needed Jesus. So Peter knows their fear because he's lived it out, and so he, in mercy, like Jesus on the cross who says, forgive them, they know not what they do, Peter says, consider Jesus. They represent for us more than just individual fear. They represent what happens when fear spreads out into society as well. But you may be thinking along with me, how could healing a lame man thrust them into fear? It's because it stirred the crowds. The crowds, you see, were under their control, the Sanhedrin. If the crowds got out of hand, if this radical call of Jesus led them out of fear, how could you control them? If you can't scare them, how can you control them? And so they're trying their best to put fear back into the hearts of the people. Because, you see, when Jesus was walking this earth, Israel was under the rule of Rome. They had actually lost their sovereignty many, many years before. And while they had their own country, their rulers were always appointed, and they were at the law and whim of other rulers. And Caesar was getting sick and tired of all the little rebellions in Israel. How dare these little people think that they could somehow raise up against me? Their God could never squash me. Look at my empire. Look at how great I am. I have all the power. And so if rebellion arose, the Sanhedrin knew that Caesar might come in and finally take away what little bit of power they had. Really, their power was meaningless. Caesar gave them no mind. He really bullied them. But to them, at least this measure of control gave them a false sense of security. And in their own minds, they were still the center, centerpiece of Israel. They still had a little bit of power and power is so much like this. It is so often such an illusion that we really have peace. But we know the underlying fear that comes out because it comes out in anger and lashing out. You see, the, the, the power of Jesus did not just threaten them and their sense of religion. It disrupted the very fabric of their society. What would it mean if, they, if these people really lived inside the Easter message and we could not scare them back into submission. So they asked Peter and John, by what power, by what name, by what right do you have to be doing these things in our temple? And they respond, there is only one answer for you and for us. The power of God is given to us all through his son, Jesus Christ. The root of sin has always been about power. Remember the, the, the serpent's lie to Adam and Eve? If you eat of this tree, you will be made like God, and they went after it. And the sad irony of our sin is that it didn't bring us power. It brought us brokenness, but it still drives us. It still deceives us to ask the question that Satan placed into our hearts. How can we have such power? And the answer is you can't. Submit to God. He has all the power. But we still go looking for the upper hand. Individuals and societies alike fight to be the strongest. In the flesh and in the world, power is a zero-sum game. I've got to be stronger than you to beat you. 
In a world of sin, this is true enough. And for the Sanhedrin, they knew that they could not win by going toe-to-toe over matters of faith. These disciples were performing healings. They were seeing people raised from the dead. They were seeing miraculous things daily. So they still tried to rule by fear. We humans instinctively believe that through power and control, we can have peace and security. On a certain level, this is true enough. We do want to have some sort of security. We need a strong military. And none of us would want to be dropped into a hostile situation without some sort of protection. We need financial security. We need these things. And Scripture isn't blind to this fact that nations need security. The problem is, is when the flesh kicks in, it becomes power at all costs. People will cheat one another at work to climb the ladder for the security of money. Politicians will they'll make secretive deals. They'll compromise their morality in order to feel a little bit safer. And nations use aggression to manipulate one another. And even as people of faith, we can even use our religion as a power play. You've got to do this because it's the right thing. And if you don't, I'm going to guilt you into it. We can't just live in it ourselves and promote it in our own lives. We have to make other people do it. But that's not how the power of God works. It has to be accepted, not forced. And some of you may be thinking, well, pastor, give us an example if you dare. <laughs> I'm not a perfect judge, and I'm a young man, and I'm still trying to figure all this out myself. Uh, I'm, I'm afraid that any example I may give uh, may fall flat. Issues of politics, issues of religion, and how they all tie into the public square are sensitive issues, even in close-knit families, right? And we might not all agree on how it might be done. So if I can't provide you an example, I will give you this. I can provide you a principle. And here's the principle. If there is any situation, any point in your life, where you say to yourself, in this moment, I cannot think or act as a Christian, then you cannot be a Christian at all. Because Christianity is not about a way of doing things. It's not about a way of thinking certain, at certain times. It's not about certain actions. It is evermore a way of life. If I make no other point this morning, I will have done my duty if you can hear this. Everything we do, in private and in public, should be shaped by Jesus Christ. Amen. The powers that be have no bearing on this. They cannot steal that away from you. They can threaten your very life, but they cannot take this away from you. Because for the flesh, it is a zero-sum game. But for those in the Spirit, our power is different. It is shaped by Jesus, and I can even give it to you, or at least offer it to you. And it doesn't diminish the power that I have in the Spirit. We must be shaped by the Holy Spirit that brings about joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and long-suffering in every single area of your life, whether at home, at work, in the political sphere, or on social media, I dare say. In all arenas, Christ is to lead us. And this is why Peter calls him the cornerstone. 
There is some debate on whether it's the cornerstone or the capstone. Either way, it means the same thing, basically, because we're talking about a principal stone. Once a principal stone is in place, the whole foundation and the whole building, for that matter, is set. The building is shaped by that stone. Its purpose is given by that one stone. Everything moves from the cornerstone. And if Jesus is your cornerstone, he is the principal piece by, the, by which the entire foundation of your life, everything on your life is built on the shape of Jesus. And if you just make him one block amongst many, he will become a stumbling block. Because trying to fit him in anywhere else than the principal place will just frustrate you. He will not wedge in. Jesus is stubborn like that. So Peter stood before the council on this day, proclaiming Jesus as the name by which we all must be saved. And we take this to mean Jesus will save us for eternity. We take it out to its final extent, which we should. This is what Peter means. But I also want to point out that Peter is defending himself right here on an immediate charge. And they ask him, by what power have you done this? And he says, if you want to know how this man is healed, and in the Greek, the actual the word is saved, if you want to know how this man was saved from his lameness, I will tell you it was by the power of Jesus Christ. It is not just the power to get us to heaven one day down the road. It is the power for all of our healing. Every bit of goodness that we get comes from Jesus Christ in the here and now and in the eternity to come. Peter and John did not have to have a knockdown dragout fight with the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin wanted to pick a fight because that was the only way they could express their power. The powers that be wanted to flex their muscle. And Peter and John had finally gotten to the point in Easter peace to go, I don't have to compete with you. In fact, consider Jesus. He is the name by which we are all saved. We don't know how they all responded. Hopefully some of them eventually learned. So church, we should seek the welfare of our family. We should seek the welfare of our workplace. We should seek the welfare of our nation and of our world. But even when our efforts are rejected by the powers that be, we don't have to result to power plays. We don't have to play any games with the world. We can still have peace when the world is falling down around us because Jesus is Lord. He leads me through the valley of the shadow of death. And because he lives, I will fear no evil. Amen. Do you believe it? Amen. Let this be your meditation then. As you continue to fight the good fight and work for the welfare of all that you hold dear, allow Jesus to shape you to shape your attitude even towards your adversaries. And like Peter, only talk when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, never from the flesh, because the flesh is only going to lash out and it's going to drive people away. The Spirit will draw them in. And even when you're rejected, look back at them in boldness and simply say, consider Jesus, because they're going to see that peace in you. They're going to know that even though they flexed at you and they bowed up and you didn't back down, you didn't bow back up, you just were calm and collected 
And that will draw them to Jesus. Amen. This has been a production of College Place United Methodist Church. May God bless you richly upon hearing this message.